Welcome to Unlikely Intersections, where intent, impact, and inquiry inspire our conversations. I'm Doc Philip Brown with my good friend Terry Jackson. We're here today uh, at the intersection. This is going to be one of many intersections that you face on a daily basis, and how you navigate those determines the trajectory of your day and your life. Today's topic, proximity and perspective, applies to everything. It does apply to everything, and it's extremely appropriate at this time, given the fact that we are in the middle of Dr. King's holiday uh, celebration uh, we can reflect on proximity and perspective and how proximate we actually are to what's going on in our community and in the world. Say a little bit more about that. You know, um, you really introduced me to this whole proximity um, concept a couple of years ago when you mentioned Just Mercy, the, the, the movie, the book. Uh, I purchased the book, look, watched the movie, of course, Outstanding. And you begin to talk about in order to understand um, challenges that we face in our community as well as the world, you got to become proximate to them. You got to become close to them to really, I'm going to use the word intimate with them, to really truly understand the root cause of it all and why people respond the way they do, given their perspective in life, simply because their perspective is created by the environment in which they're raised more, more than, than likely, right? And so oftentimes we come with skewed perspective given where we come from versus the objectivity that we may need to have as we approach some of these. And so being that Dr. King is who he is to us today, if we go back to the time that Dr. King was living, he was totally different to a lot of people simply because he was upsetting the status quo. And I think I threw out a statistic earlier, and that was 72% of all of the people during the time of Dr. King lived despised Dr. King. That research is, is out there for people to, to take a look at, and they despised him because he was upsetting the status quo. That 72% is inclusive of black people as well who thought that, hey, you, you're pushing a little bit too much. Just a quick story about Dr. King. I met a gentleman in Durham named Dr. Eaton some years ago, different from the Dr. Eaton from Wilmington. But his, his claim to fame in history was before Dr. King became the minister at Dexter Memorial Baptist Church in Alabama, there was a gentleman named Vernon Johns. Well, Vernon Johns was a radical, and so they fired him as the minister, thinking that they were going to bring in a younger Dr. Martin Luther King, who was even more radical than Vernon Johns. But after Dr. King left as the minister, Dr. Eaton was the minister after Dr. King. Uh, and so I met him and had some great conversation with him. It's quite interesting because he, now that I reflect on the conversation, I can become a little bit more proximate to that whole cause of what Dr. King was, was, uh, was, was I guess, uh, promoting. You know, and basically what he's promoting was equality. That's all he was talking about. But the people hated him at the time. And it's interesting because everybody seems to love him today. And so I always, I always wonder, where would you have stood at that time if you were living when Dr. King lived? Would you have loved him as you love him today? 
or would you have been amongst the 72% that despised him? That's a great question. And I, you know, from a personal standpoint, I have no idea. My suspicion <laughs> is I would be curious, right? right? I mean, mm-hmm. just because that's my nature at this right. time. If I put myself now into that time, I think my first reaction would be, "What does all this mean?" Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it would launch into an exploration uh, from there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the question is, in that time, mm-hmm. you know, going back to today's mm-hmm. topic. How would a person like me get proximate to what was going on mm-hmm. in that era with mm-hmm. those with with his leadership? Mm-hmm. Would it even be possible? Uh, I don't know, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But it's a fascinating thing to think because you know, I totally stole the proximity concept from from Brian Stevenson, mm-hmm. who's obviously brilliant. Uh, but I like to explore it from the context of why you're staying close to things. Mm-hmm. And I think there really are, there are three parts to it. The first part is that you have to have a willingness mm-hmm. to get close to something that might make you uncomfortable mm-hmm. and something that hadn't been a part of your sphere of understanding. Then the second part is that when that discomfort truly hits, and it will in my mm-hmm. experience, mm-hmm. you have to stay despite that. Agree. Agree. But not much solution making gets done to that point, right? So we've gotten to that second stage and folks are uncomfortable. And the natural tendency, something we've seen in this community for many years, is to throw some money and a, and a <laughs> solution at it mm-hmm. based on <clears throat> partial knowledge mm-hmm. just to feel better. Mm-hmm. 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 And, and then you end up with this whole recycled thing of, as you say, recycled ineffectiveness, right? Because <laughs> yeah, right. we didn't get to that third part, mm-hmm. which is where it's really important. It's where the main learning comes, and that is, you're staying there because you're uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, it incites action mm-hmm. in a really positive way. Mm-hmm. And because you're uncomfortable, it opens up the possibility of getting help from the people who really are the ones most affected by the situation, which means you have to listen mm-hmm. and be uh, a lot more open to ideas that are different than yours and really you know that's where the magic happens we got a ton of episodes around all those concepts um, but to me that's how it works it's three parts right like be willing to do something different that might make you uncomfortable mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. when you're uncomfortable sit in it mm-hmm. understand what it means until it connects with you at a at a level of empathy at a feeling level mm-hmm. so that you're staying there because you're uncomfortable and you want to help be part of the solution. That's right. You mentioned two words earlier. You mentioned, well, you mentioned curiosity. And what came to mind for me was courage, right? Because initially, your courage and you find, you you know, you're curious and you find out a little bit about it. And then as you stay in it and you become more proximate to it, it takes courage. And especially when you become uncomfortable uh, with it, 
because you can choose, hey, this is really not my fight, and I really don't have a dog in this, and so I can walk away. Instead of becoming uncomfortable, I don't need to be uncomfortable. Everything is okay with me. But this is about something that's bigger than the individual, right? It's, it's as we like to say, it's bigger than us, and we have to understand because all of us should be a part of creating solutions, right? And you're, you're, you were so right when you say, what happens is oftentimes someone writes a check and they want to throw money at it without having full understanding of what the root cause <clears throat> actually is. And so <clears throat> they really don't want to become proximate by writing the check, right? They just want to have everything at arm's length. <laughs> Create right? a safe distance. Yeah, That's exactly. what that is. <laughs> Ex ex exactly, exactly. Um, and so with that, the courage to stay proximate. You know, you, you mentioned it. You, you, you saw the movie Just Mercy. You know, you loved the concept, so you began to implement it in your life. You introduced it to me. Um, and I kind of observed, you know, based upon meetings that I go to, you know, how proximate are these people to the problem? Are they really trying to really, are they really trying to come up with a solution and remain uncomfortable? I told some people yesterday, I said, you have to become comfortable being uncomfortable because <clears throat> people, sometimes I think, <clears throat> excuse me, that I think that comfortable now or uh, being uncomfortable is, is a, is a, a trending fad kind of word, right? You know, they don't really want to be, you know, uncomfortable. They like to say that they're uncomfortable, but what is their level? What is their level of uncomfort? What level of uncomfortability are they willing to go to to truly understand the problem? You gave me an example. Um, <clears throat> I think when you first started, you, you were, you know, the founder of, of NC Swim. And you went to help a family, and you were putting together beds. And in putting together beds, you guys got a little hungry, so you decided to order some pizza. And you waited for a long time, and you kind of realized why, <clears throat> you know, hey, the pizza's not here. And then you found out that the pizza delivery company didn't deliver there. After dark. Yeah. And so, right. Yeah. And so, you know, it made you a little uncomfortable, right? But you stuck with the entire proximity. What, how, how do I want to say it? You stuck with it, right? You've been mired in this work for some time, uncovering what it is that certain people in certain communities are experiencing that you don't have to. You don't, you don't have to because you're a very successful business person, very successful surgeon, but you want to get to what the root of this is as a human being. And I was discussing with someone last night at the event that I told you I went to that the challenge is getting others to see blacks as human because of the narrative and the images that have been painted for a number of years that's ingrained in the mind. And oftentimes what happens is all many people learn about other people it's from the news, the newspaper, or the radio. I think I did a little bit of research, and I found out that most white people don't have a black friend. And you have to ask yourself, how? And how can that happen? And why? And so if, if there's going to be real solution, 
knowing that the majority of white people don't have one black friend, how proximate are they willing to become? That's a fantastic question. Yeah, the pizza delivery story is amazing because, you know, that happened six blocks over your right shoulder and mm-hmm. the pizza place is 12 blocks <laughs> over my right shoulder. Right. It couldn't happen. So it's really interesting that we find ourselves in that in that particular world at this at this time. And that was pre-COVID, so it wasn't a staffing thing. It was just a policy <laughs> issue. Right. Um, and so it really, I love the way you put uh, curiosity and courage together. And I think, I think we talked about this on the episode with Sally Helgeson, mm-hmm. you know, and I went back to my, my life is basically ruled by quotes and nursery rhymes and things <laughs> from, yeah. from Kipling, you know, Ricky Ticky Tabby, mm-hmm. the hardest thing in the world is to scare a mongoose. He's because he's uh, eaten up from nose to tail with curiosity. He's literally mm-hmm. too curious to be scared. And for me, that curiosity piece has been a real antidote to Mm. discomfort. Um, And asking myself repeatedly the question, what does this mean? Mm -hmm. Or what must be true for these conditions to exist has been helpful. Uh, And it's very much a work in progress. Mm -hmm. Uh, It it becomes a way of of being over time Mm -hmm. to look at things like that. And it, and it, I think it helps. Oh, it helps in a lot of ways, but it just helps open up space to hear differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's no, but there's no substitute for being close to what's happening if you really want to understand mm-hmm. pragmatic steps that can make a difference. Mm-hmm. It, it, you know that that's very true. And, and like I, again, I, I commend you for staying close because I think I shared an article with you. I think it was Kyle Corver, NBA basketball player, and he was like, "Well, he was hearing his his black teammates talk about the challenges that they face on a day to day basis, some of the experiences they had, and he didn't quite believe it until he went to the New York Knicks, and one of his one of his players was beaten by the police, and he was injured, and so he couldn't play the rest of the year." And Kyle experienced that, and he saw that. And then all of a sudden, he began to realize, and he stayed proximate to it. And he wrote a great article talking about how he felt and how, for most people, for most white people, at the end of the day, you can walk away. You know, you can disengage because, hey, I'm, I'm down here, I'm, I'm, I'm for Dr. King, and I'm for all that he stood for, but at the end of the day, I disengage and I go home to my community and I sit back and I'm not 100% impacted by it. For the African-American who can never disengage because we're talking about only facing those challenges because of the hue of the skin, right? A, a biological gift, if you will. Um, and so you can never disengage. You know, you, you, you walk out the door and... Um, officer sees you and all of a sudden you fit the description, right? Or last night I, after the, the event, I said, man, it's, I didn't really get anything to eat, so I'm going to run down to Jimmy John's and get me a, a, a sandwich real quick. And so I go to the Jimmy John's by uh, the hospital, 17th Street, and I'm coming back and I see the police, a police officer following me. You know, and I'm like, hmm, is it me? Was it paranoia? But that's what the experience is like being an African-American male. And it's, it's, it's nighttime, 
and the cops are following you and you can tell because you look up in the mirror okay this is what this is let me make this left and they make a left yep that's what that is right <laughs> you, you know what it is right even though they say well no we're not fine. because you know they get behind you and they run your tag and they want to see you know who you are and stop you and why maybe you're in a particular area right and it comes with the territory and so you just kind of chuckle and i say well you know instead of making a left i'm gonna make a right this time see if they follow and if they do, you know what it is. But those are the kind, for no reason at all. And those are the kinds of things that sometimes it's difficult to get people to understand what that's actually, uh, you know, what that's actually like. I remember being in college, and I remember um, I'd been in the house all day. It was during the summer. I'd been in there studying because I was taking some summer school classes. And I decided to go out to my car at this apartment complex in the middle of the day to get something out. And all of a sudden, I look around at police. This lady talks about someone stole her, it snatched her pocketbook. And I'm like, couldn't have been me. I've been in the house all day long. <laughs> I've been in the study. I'm a student at the Central. And so I was asked to get in the car. Took me around to the corner to Kroger. And this, this white woman, her pocketbook had been stolen. And so she was, is this the guy? And she says, yes. And I was like, wow, couldn't have been me. I've been in the house all day. Luckily, five or six other people who saw it, that's not him. He, that guy fits nowhere near the description. But in her mind, I fit the description because it was someone who was African-American, and she just wanted to make sure that somebody was charged with, with it, but it wasn't me. And so those things happen all the time, right? They come with the territory. And, in, and, and again, I commend you because you were real proximate. We've had a lot of conversations. You know a lot of the same people I know, so you kind of get what the experiences have been. But everybody's not willing to be that proximate. And some people say they want to be proximate, but they're only faking because that's what the trend is. Well, you know, it's, it's, um, <clears throat> it's important to, to have uh, diversity in your in your network of advisors or friends mm -hmm. or social, however you want to do it to understand all kinds of diversity mm -hmm. is helpful. Uh, and that's a great reason why I want to tell a story. One of the most powerful uh, experiences that I can remember on the business side uh, was shortly uh, after in the aftermath of the George Floyd incident. I mean, we had, you know, we, things were stacked. You had Ahmaud Arbery, you had mm -hmm. George Floyd. And in our organization at that time, we made the realization that a lot of people were in a bad place mm -hmm. because of that, as, as you would expect. And so our leadership team convened and this was in the COVID era obviously we convened a zoom meeting with our african-american brg to listen mm -hmm. and we began to hear real life stories that they had experienced not too different from mm -hmm. your story and of course these were people that we knew that mm -hmm. worked with us on a day-to-day -day basis and it really had a, had an effect on people who had never heard it before, and even on me to hear how close it really still is in our community. Mm -hmm. 
And then we watched that play out because we had the incident with the with the police officers who got fired for all their comments that were called mm-hmm. on the camera. Mm-hmm. And it was it was a real life example of what you know, being close to the problem means different things. But one thing that's gotta be present is you have to be close to people with the problem. Mm-hmm. Otherwise you can't understand. You're just that's looking, right. you don't understand the the underlying factors. You don't understand history. It's like a question that came up for us before this episode, unrelated, right? But is, you know, is appreciating heritage important yes. for mm-hmm. building community and community development? And I mean, I mm-hmm. think that's a resounding yes. And you have to understand as much of it as possible. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It's, it's interesting because, um, <clears throat> during that whole George Floyd time, you know, you I'd have you had some white friends who say all he had to do was stop resisting, and he didn't need to resist. I'm like he wasn't resisting; uh, he just should have been all kinds of. And I I said, you know what? I hear what you're saying, but we're friends, correct? Yes, that could have been me. So what had what if it been me and you know me? And you saw me that way. Would you still say the same things? And so, of course, the response has changed. Well, Terry, I would have did something. But that was a human being. So why are you now saying all he had to do was stop resisting? What, how much pain could he have possibly been under with a, uh, a knee on his neck? <laughs> you know, would you, would you would have squirmed a little bit too. And so I tried to get people to feel how I feel by putting myself in that situation. So, because, and these are people that I've known for years. And so I said, well, so what if that was me? Then what? And we have to look at it that way. And so that's how you've approached it. And that's how I've approached it. And it it's almost par for the course for me. Okay, well, this guy's going to pull me. I know, you know, let me just get my, let me, let me, let me put my hands up on the steering wheel. Right. The, the, the whole conversation of, you know, I had to have a conversation with my daughter the other week about uh, the same kind of thing, right? Just a conversation, a reminder. Um, but it's a reality. And for those who don't understand, you have to get proximate. And you kind of have to put your perspective to the side. You have to come in with an open mind and open eyes to see what it is. And then be curious enough to ask the questions and have the courage enough to have the conversation. Having friends who are different than you is such an important tool that you mentioned earlier. And it goes to understanding that as human, right? Your, yeah. your example just a second ago was exactly that. And we know that there's still a major problem because I see it in the medical literature, like contemporary medical literature mm about perceptions that are based that are race-based or Mm gender-based or Mm -hmm. based on various factors that scientifically can't possibly make a difference right Mm -hmm. there's perception of how pain is perceived is a is a very prominent one Mm -hmm. and we know going back historically Mm -hmm. uh, gynecologic surgery in particular one of the leaders that developed many of the gynecologic procedures mm-hmm. did uh, experimentation without anesthesia on mm-hmm. black women mm-hmm. 
because it, you know the the perception the belief mm-hmm. was that they don't feel pain mm-hmm. at any significant level so they don't need it but as soon as they brought it into the population as a whole mm-hmm. it was under anesthesia mm-hmm. and that that thread has carried through in our in, in our medical industry and we know that we see disparities in care all the time mm-hmm. that are based on deep underlying beliefs that aren't even in people's consciousness when they're making decisions mm-hmm. and to me the, the still the key is seeing that person as a human just like yourself mm-hmm. And that means you got to know people, you know, not at a transactional level, Mm -hmm. but there's got to be some, all the things that make friends, right? Mutual vulnerability, Mm -hmm. helping one another, Mm -hmm. shared experience, Mm -hmm. um, and debate, you know, and all those kind of things are so important. And Mm -hmm. I was fortunate in my upbringing to be around athletics from the time I was a young child because of my father's occupation. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it, you know, it was highly integrated at that time. Mm-hmm. And so it was always a part of my understanding that we're all just people, mm-hmm. you know. Like, I used to view my dad's team members, black or white, as basically as big brothers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so when you put it in that, context and that's the perspective that you bring to to the world you do see a little bit differently mm-hmm. now what you don't necessarily see and this only began to occur to me much later what you don't see is what happens when you're not there and only much later in life decades later did i begin to understand and hear what was happening for some of the people who I viewed as friends, peers, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. neighbors, brothers, um, in their communities and in their day-to-day lives. And that's part of that being close enough to it, to be uh, uncomfortable and to stick with it and to understand that, Hey, we got to figure out how to do this differently in a positive way. Yeah. You know, I remember when I first played, started playing, uh, sports, um, city league, football I think I was 10 years old Packers practiced out at Roland Grice I was uh, one of two African Americans on the team you know decent athlete so played tight end was you know pretty good team wasn't that good but I was I was pretty good and that experience of as you said playing sports just <clears throat> Brings, it enables you to see differently. So, you you know, you keep moving through the ranks of playing city league and you're playing school and you gain all of these friends, diverse group of friends. And you think that's how the world actually is. And it can be. And so I've always been baffled about what changes when you leave school because you've built those bonds. You know, I like to say, you know, when you played ball together, you've, you've cried together, you you perspired together, and you've bled together. And so to me, that's a bond. And I saw my peers, guys that I played with, regardless of who they were and how athletic they were, I saw them as brothers. And so you begin to ask, 
what changes once you leave school or you leave, you know, college? Why should, why does this relationship kind of not necessarily break down, but you don't, you're not in contact as often, right? I often, you know, wondered that. And uh, I'm still baffled by that, to be honest. And I still have those conversations with my, my friends when I see certain friends that I hadn't seen in a long time, what really happened. Um, and so one of the things that when you get proximate to it, because it happens when, you, when you're dealing with perspective, is where is the truth in the perspective of proximity? Because sometimes everybody's truth is different, right? It's not the truth, but when you start getting proximate, that's, that's how you have these factions, uh, and I'm not into politics, but... Democrat and, and, and Republican, and they can say they're proximate, but they see it totally different, right? For whatever reason, whether it's loyalty to their party and not seeing the absolute truth or they're seeing the truth from a political uh, uh, Republican perspective or the truth from a Democratic perspective, right? And so they still call it truth, but it's not. It's been, that, that truth has been, the, tr the word truth has been bastardized, <laughs> <laughs> you know, to serve their purpose, Right? Uh, and it's not the truth. And so how do we get to the truth in being proximate? Yeah, that's one of my favorite concepts, actually. I've been spending a lot of time working on it. Um, because what, what you're really describing is, you know, you have your truth and I have my truth. And both are true mm -hmm. for us <laughs> based mm -hmm. on really different life experiences and some shared life experiences. But you see... In any interaction, there's a reciprocal obligation. And right now, a lot of times folks get stuck saying, I want to bring my truth to everything I do. I want my authentic self to be there. And those are two different things, right? Because you can be your authentic self without having to beat the world over the head with your version of the truth because of that reciprocal obligation. That reciprocal obligation is that when, when we're together and doing things, I'm obligated to allow your truth to affect mine, and mm -hmm. you're obligated to allow my truth to affect yours. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean they're ever going to be the same exact thing, mm -hmm. but the idea is that we both get a chance to grow mm -hmm. and, you know, and get better. Mm -hmm. But I want to pivot us a little bit on this proximity principle because, you know, sometimes you can be too close for too long and also lose some perspective. And I'll use an example from my life as well. You know, so this was a, I'll call it a missed opportunity to understand the way the world really was at the time. So put me back in undergraduate education and, you know, I was, very close working with the basketball team at UNCW, a manager. And I lived in the dorms with the team. I spent the vast majority of my non-class time mm -hmm. with members of the team. And that was a very diverse group. Mm -hmm. I was close to that. And I kind of thought that's how it was. But had I been able to elevate myself and look overall at the full constellation of the university itself or of the community, 
that level of diversity and that level of interaction between different people wasn't happening. That's right. Right. Like it was a total, a total miss that the world was different than I realized it. Right. It had followed my, it's like the, the, the universe had followed my path. Right. Because athletics all my life get into college, same thing again. And I never, you know, I never had the reality that, that, Folks of a different color had a different set of factors mm-hmm. in terms of a lot of things you've described earlier. And again, mm-hmm. it wasn't until later that I began to see that. You know, it's it's interesting. I've I've made some statements um, before, and and I remember you know coming up, meeting the guys on the basketball team at UNC Wilmington, becoming friends with quite a few of them, um, and they mixed and mingled more in the community then than they do now. Uh, and I often wondered how those relationships got to where they where they are because uh, I've seen some of the gentlemen that I grew up watching play basketball and we become very good friends and we communicate on a regular basis, right? And then you bump into others and you say, hey, man, I was in Wilmington when you played at UNCW. And so, it, you know, we all remember. But then you look at the relationship of the university to the community. And for the most part, and maybe it's just me, I just I say that you know they've never really had a vested interest in the African American community, other outside of ball players, right? Um, they really don't mix and mingle. And when I look throughout the community, and I look for solutions, and I look for things that they should be, at least I think they should be doing. Let me put it that way. I'm like, you know, they're 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 missing a huge opportunity. They should be a driver of social change in the community, given that it is an institution of higher learning. They should be a driver of, uh, one of the drivers of economic uh, uh, empowerment and, and growth, because they should be generating the type of students or the professors, they're generating patents in such a way that they're creating opportunities for uh, employment in the area. And maybe they are, and maybe I'm just not proximate enough to the to the <laughs> university, right, to see yeah. what, what what they're doing. Well, but. I think there's great uh, positive motion uh, in that direction. Uh, in fact, I was part of a meeting yesterday. We were looking, happened to be structured around street medicine, right, mm-hmm. how you get mm-hmm. care mm-hmm. closer mm-hmm. To, mm-hmm. to the people. Um, but I see a lot of things now at the Center for Community Impact. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had several really uh, powerful conversations with uh, the new chancellor, and the philosophy of what the university means to the community mm-hmm. uh, is getting to a place that I think is really powerful. I think we're going to see that uh, in the upcoming time. And I've always thought that that needed to be more the case. But I have watched it over the course of the last number of years move in that direction. And, I, and we as, as Novant Health uh, have good relationships with the university now that's mm-hmm. really helping with upward mobility opportunities mm-hmm. from communities um, really uh, fantastic connections to the communities uh, through their social work program and having interns that go out into all the communities and are getting proximate awesome. and over time of course what's got to happen is you don't just show up and <laughs> and everything's good. You start mm-hmm. working together because mm-hmm. there's that whole trust building phase that mm-hmm. has to happen. And that just takes time. It, and 
above all else, uh, a lot of times it takes consistency because mm-hmm. what we've seen, you know, we've seen the, as you mentioned earlier, the check writing philosophy, right? Where I'm just going, I'm going to make a contribution and that's going to be it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to wash my hands of mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. and be out. And what that leads to a lot of times is unfulfilled promises. Mm-hmm. And, and so that stamina to stay consistently with something, mostly with people of a community to work through issues is really important. And that's what we've done as a, as a healthcare system too. You know, we, we started in 2017 with the Northside community Mm -hmm. assessment Mm -hmm. door to door in a lot of components. Ideas came from that. Mm -hmm. We helped the community working hand in hand Mm -hmm. to achieve some of those Mm -hmm. things. Mm Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it just grows. It, yeah, it does. You, you have to, you, you know, it does take time. Trust has to be built because, you know, you, you think about all that's happened in, in there, you know, there's a word of, you know, called exploitation. And so people are like, well, is this another way to, to exploit us? Um, and then from the other side, we can't always look at things from a victim perspective, right? It's like, well... Uh, I'm black, and this has happened to me because of this, right? Uh, sometimes we do have to step out of our own way, right, and say, okay, let me try to look at this thing a little bit more objectively. And that's the, you know, that's the when you can be too close to it too, right? That's right. Because, if you know, if that begins to be the way it is, mm-hmm. then you're looking for it, you see more of it. Just like leadership, while you might be down in the operations at one moment, you intermittently have to pop up That's right. and take that mountaintop view and understand the bigger perspective of what's going on. Mm-hmm. That the context you were in when you were close to it is only a piece of the puzzle and there may be other moves to be made, other opportunities. Yeah, you know, the whole piece of proximity is, is really tricky. And I'll, I'll tell another personal you know, story uh, of, I'll call it personal growth, right? <laughs> but as we were doing a lot of this Northside work, I really didn't know my place in terms of how much should I be there personally mm-hmm. versus not. Because I've never, you know, I'm really sensitive to the notion that, you know, I can't solve these problems and I'm not trying to save anything. What I believe is that we're so mutually interdependent mm-hmm. that my well-being is ultimately based on yours. Right. And so I, that's what I, I hope to bring, but like, I didn't know the balance, right? Like, and luckily a good friend, Evelyn Bryant one day called me, you know, and it was a courageous thing on her part really to, to address this issue with me. And, uh, and she just asked me, you know, why I wasn't personally present more than Mm -hmm. I was. Mm. And, you know, I had to think through that and understand and ask Mm -hmm. her what that needed to look like. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the answer ended up being something like, well, you could definitely be there too much, but you're not threatening that right now. (laughs) Right. Right. And so, she helped me work through that balance of, you know, personal presence and proximity in mm-hmm. the, in the right, mm-hmm. in the right measure. 
mm-hmm. because it's important. You, you, you have to trust that things can happen when you're not there because it's from the people. And at the same time, you have to be there enough that they trust you care. That's right. That's right. Because <laughs> if you're not there, you know, ever, and it seems like you don't care. I'm going to combine another word with proximity, right? We have to be strategically proximate. See, my whole thought process is, and I told a, a friend of mine this, a white gentleman, I told him this one day. I said, what you don't understand is because we have these higher level degrees, be it masters or PhDs, there's a lot of people in our community who expect for us to have the answers. And we're not going to have every answer. And so whether it's around economics, whether it's around crime, somebody's going to ask me a question simply because of Dr. Terry Jackson, and I'm expected to have an answer. I said, that's a lot of pressure. Regardless of what the situation is, they're going to run to, whether it's me or some other, someone else, African-American in the community with a PhD, they expect us to have the answer. We are supposed to have the answer because you have the degree. Well, for me, I like to be more behind the scenes. I like to be proximate from behind the scenes. Pick up the phone, have a, have a phone call, give someone some direction, you know, influence them a particular way versus necessarily being on site for my face to be seen all the time. And that actually came up last night when I was at an event, MLK, and I was uh, reciting part of, of his speech. And somebody said, oh, how have you been? We hadn't seen you in a while. I said, well, you know, I've been around um, just trying to make the right phone calls, having the right connections. I said, well, we, need to, we just need to see you a little bit more. So I got the message. <laughs> <laughs> I got the message that we need to see. You need to come out more, right? Because, you know, I, I guess you can call, I, I guess I can say I'm somewhat of an introvert, right? But I've always thought that let me be able to pull the strings from behind. I want to be the puppet master. Right, not necessarily the, the the puppet or the person out front. I don't need the accolades, but I want to be an influencer from behind closed doors. And um, so they told me I need to come out a little bit more. So I guess I'll come out a little bit more and be more proximate from a visual perspective, and maybe I'm not going to say less strategically proximate, right behind the closed doors. Yeah, it's a it's a fascinating balance and striking it is another one of those areas where we need help a lot of times, right? Yes. You know, we just, just you know, I describe something and you describe something where we didn't quite have the balance right. right. And, That's right. And we got help uh, right. to find That's that right. out. And I think there's a, there's a tremendous tie to what we know about leadership in general now. Um, having all the answers is impossible right. a, when the knowledge rate doubles every few hours yes uh and so it it requires a different level of humility and a different level of engagement so you start peeling that back well you got to have relationship Mm -hmm. so this whole idea you know the leader can't just suddenly show up and expect that he or she is going to hear everything they need to from the people unless there's already a relationship mm-hmm. and there's that mm-hmm. safety, mm-hmm. right? And you can't, you can't pronounce it. You can't make a, you, you can't make a declaration that mm-hmm. says this is going to be a safe environment or you are empowered to do something that 
that's just counterfeit <laughs> and everybody, you know, mm-hmm. it's a condition that has to be created. And, mm-hmm. and that really comes from the leader developing that environment over time through his or her team, through each, you know, each level and making it a different, a different setup. I agree with you. You know, I attended a meeting yesterday where a gentleman was like, well, you know, I w- I'm inviting you because, you know, you speak better than I do and you probably understand what they're talking about as far as economic development more than I do. But the bottom line is we need you to save the lodge. <laughs> we need you to help us get this funding to save the lodge, right? So that's basically why I'm in the meeting. And I'm in the meeting and it, it goes to what you were talking about. I can't possibly show up and know all of the things that they've been going because they've been meeting for some time. But what I need to do is I need to know the right questions to ask as a leader so I can begin to connect the dots, right? And so I begin to ask questions around, okay, you you guys are talking about, you know, this is a nonprofit organization and you're talking about economic development, so you're talking about job creation from a training perspective. And so I begin to ask questions around, you know, what does that economic uh, vehicle look like for for this organization I you know I I began to ask the right questions and so they felt more comfortable because the right questions were asked and now they have a better understanding and so now the gentleman is like well I'm gonna call you and talk to you because when we give this presentation I want you to give it right but again it comes down to how do we influence and how do we develop others to, to 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 think of how to ask the right question right it's about teaching someone to fish versus feeding them. And oftentimes what happens in our community is we're looking for somebody to give us the fish. But for longevity sake and for sustainability, it has to become how to teach you how to fish. I need to teach you how to fish because if I'm not here, then what happens? And that shouldn't be the case. And so I would say for a lot of quote-unquote uh uh, into black intellectuals or scholars or whatever, it's always the the answer. We live in a world of a savior syndrome. There's always a lot of African Americans looking for the savior to come save them versus them understanding, looking in the mirror that they are the savior. Well, we've ended, I think, on a biblical metaphor. <laughs> and like so many of our conversations, you know, there's a lot more that could be had. Yes. And we really want to thank our audience for listening and we hope this does inspire some conversations on your part, maybe with somebody who's different from you. If you want to get more from us, check us out at unlikelyintersection.com or check out our Facebook page, Unlikely Intersections. Find me on LinkedIn at Doc Philip Brown. And Terry. You can find Terry Jackson, PhD, on LinkedIn. And please visit our YouTube page as well unlikely intersections you'll find all of the episodes there and we hope that you would like comment and enjoy see you at the next intersection <laughs>